The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, one of the, I guess, results uh, of the pandemic has been a migration move. I mean, a lot of folks leaving, like, New York City, and they're going and other and the coasts and the high cost, high tax areas and going to places like, I don't know, Nashville, Tennessee, Austin, Texas and the great state of North Carolina has been a beneficiary of that as well. And we want to break that down. We're going to do that today. We're fortunate to have here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, Michelle Baker Sanders, North Carolina Secretary of Commerce and Mike Fox, President and CEO of the Piedmont Triad Partnership. Uh, so. Michelle and Mike, thanks so much for joining us here. Michelle, talk to us about the state of North Carolina and what you guys have experienced from a commerce perspective, a business perspective over the last several years. Thank you. Over the last several years, what we have experienced is that uh, booming growth and a momentum with some, I believe, uh, attraction, uh, bringing an in-migration of people, families, and jobs, as you mentioned. Um, over the past couple of years, despite the pandemic and uh, concerns about a recession and the labor supply market, we have broken records when it comes to the number of job crea creation uh, created and the capital investment into the state. Um, I'd specifically highlight the Carolina Core, which we're going to hopefully talk about. Yeah, tell us about it. So the Carolina Core um, is a region of North Carolina, central region, which is anchored by um, High Point, Winston-Salem, and then with Greensboro. Yep. And within that region, they have seen um, extraordinary success, uh, especially in the EV space and semiconductor space, all the really? advance in technology and right. advanced manufacturing. And so over the past year or so, they have um, attracted over $15 billion, billion dollars in capital investment, and as a result of that, created um, 16,000 jobs. And so, as you just mentioned, people are looking for yep. a great place to live, a great place to start business, and a place where they can thrive. And that's what we have found in North Carolina. And the example I'm highlighting, the Carolina Core, is definitely a place that it's experiencing so that. You have and, and you have a lot of experience in manufacturing as well, right? You come from Biogen. You were working at a number of different manufacturers, global manufacturers before this, um, and were just appointed Secretary of Commerce kind of smack dab in the middle of the pandemic, right? February 2021. Has that driven, you think, more manufacturers as we kind of unwind these global supply chains or at least try and produce more locally? Has that driven a migration to your state? Um, I believe that, that my, the migration that we are experiencing has been building over a number of years because of many visionaries across the state and the great investments that have been made by the state as well as other partners across the state. 
like the university community college system and business owners in the state. Um, you're correct, I spent about 30 years in the biotech life science industry, so I connect deeply with manufacturing, and as you know, that's a core competency for North Carolina. We have the largest manufacturing uh, talent pool in the southeastern U.S., mm -hmm. and advanced manufacturing, which I mentioned earlier, um, has been um, something that we have uh, leveraged and built on that strength. We're continuing to see it grow, and we're expecting to, and anticipating even more growth in advanced manufacturing. So, Mike, you're the CEO of the Piedmont Triad Partnership. When I think of the, the Piedmont Triad, I think Winston-Salem, Burlington, all those kinds of stuff, I think, you know, making furniture, uh, textiles and things like that. How is that part of the state kind tobacco. of evolved? Tobacco, of course. How has that part of the state kind of evolved over the last, I don't know, decade or so? So we've really made a great transition to advanced manufacturing. We have a history of manufacturing in that area, particularly with the textiles and the furniture. And we've seen those industries shrink or go offshore. That's and sad so because it's some of the greatest furniture you can buy. It still is some of the best furniture you can source in the country. Still. And we still have a thriving furniture industry. The world's largest furniture market is in High Point twice a year, every year. So what we've seen is more niche manufacturing there. Uh, and same with textiles. Those have moved to more medical specialty garments, not just the commodities. But uh, this advanced manufacturing has really taken hold. We've uh, had the foresight to develop some large sites to attract uh, large transformational projects like Toyota. <laughs> Uh, VinFast, uh, WolfSpeed, and Boom Supersonic at our airport. And so we started, we were sitting, you know, a year ago literally with four legitimate mega sites, you know, with a lot of interest but no tenants. And within the space of a year, we've had four large announcements of, of tenants that the secretary mentioned that total those uh, 15 billion, you know, investment and, you know, approximately 20,000 new jobs. What, what's driven that? I mean, the secretary points out this has been developing for years. And we, I think Paul and I both have uh, seen North Carolina really develop. Um, but the pandemic coupled with, you know, the, the, the money um, that was pushed into the economy and the CHIPS Act have to be huge drivers. They are. And, you know, quite simply, I think one of the answers is the rest of the world is, is realizing what we've known for a long time, that North Carolina is a great place to live, to work, to play. And it's also got an incredible business climate. Thanks to Secretary Sanders, Governor Cooper and our legislature, we have very favorable uh, you know, business laws and, and a tax uh, situation. But primarily, to your point, uh, with the pandemic, I think reshoring has become a lot more uh, of a focus, uh, the supply chain dynamics going from just in time to just in case have become important. And I think manufacturers want to be able to have their supply chain closer to them and not worry about is it sitting on a container somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. Exactly. And so, Secretary, you, representing the state of North Carolina, when you are courting business, when you're saying to a, a, you know, a Toyota or somebody, you need to really think about coming to our state, who do you find yourself competing against most often? We find ourselves competing against uh, the global market. Okay. Um, there are certain states, I'm sure, that companies tend to have an attraction to, but we are competing against the global market. So that's why it's so important for us to not only highlight our assets, such as the u university, the community college system, the quality of life, um, the cost of doing business in North Carolina, 
um, as well as um, the talent pool, the diverse and skilled talent pool. It's important for us to highlight those assets, but it's also important for uh, those companies to experience North Carolina, to visit us and experience the people, the culture, um, you know, experience what their employees would experience when they come to North Carolina. And so that's what we uh, enjoy and, and like to show and give that experience. Um, we also, you know, we're courting companies to come to North Carolina and businesses, but I believe what's unique is that we are with those companies, not only in that initial period, that courtship period, once we marry, once we bring them right. to North Carolina, we are, uh, intend and we work with them and partner with them throughout the longevity of their business. Talk to us about infrastructure in the state. For example, when I was at Duke, the Raleigh-Durham airport was like a grass, grass strip. Now it's this huge airport, modern. I mean, is that, I mean, it seems like the infrastructure in the state is getting better and better and better. How much of a requirement is that when you're talking to, again, some of these big corporations? North Carolina has invested deeply in infrastructure, and because of that, we have been successful, as we've discussed, um, with economic development and building more resilient communities across the state. Um, and the airports is surely a part of that. Um, you know, it, within the Carolina core, we have access to airports in the areas, of, you know, Charlotte sure, and yeah. Greensboro has airport, RDU. Um, we also have ports that are a part of our transportation infrastructure. And we invest heavily in communities to, to uh, build the sewer and water systems that are required to support these businesses. As you know, um, for semiconductor industry and advanced manufacturing, utilities, uh, the cost of energy, the cost of doing business matters, and it's very important. And so within North Carolina, we prioritize that. Um, to attract and to retain and help businesses grow. For those, for those people who haven't spent much time in North Carolina, let's define the core or the Piedmont Triad. What exactly is that? So it's roughly a 120 mile stretch that runs from Greensboro, Winston-Salem, and High Point, which is traditionally known as the Triad, down up to in, Fayetteville. Up in the north, down Correct. to Fayetteville, and kind of the southeast. And it follows roughly Highway 421, which has recently received designation as a future interstate that would connect oh. the Triad and points west all the way to uh, Wilkesboro and potentially Boone down to Fayetteville. And of course, Fayetteville is the nation, the home of the nation's largest military base in Fort Bragg. And those uh. retiring service members who uh, regularly you know, decide they want to stay in North Carolina, those are a great source of talent for our employers. And so being able to have that connection to that area, to the triad, and also to Charlotte and Raleigh is important for us in terms of developing our workforce. See, I think of North Carolina, just been a student there, I got the eastern part, which is kind of the beach, or close to the beach. Then the west is some amazing mountains, Asheville, North Carolina. Asheville is one of my favorite stuff. places to go. Exactly. The music scene, the culture, the arts Absolutely. is amazing there. Yeah. And then you got everything in the middle, which I call the middle. But now you guys call the core and all that kind of stuff. But that's kind of where a lot of uh, development is taking place. Real quick, uh, Secretary, RTP, Research Triangle Park, that's been there for decades, generations. Is that still a thing for technology? Research Triangle Park is still a thing for technology okay. in North Carolina. Yes, all right, that's good stuff because I think of North Carolina State, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, boo, and Duke University. <laughs> um, you put those three, and plus you got Wake Forest close by. It's, that's kind of been the source of Research Triangle Parks, uh, I think, uh, 
stuff. So it's just been awesome. So uh, good to talk about it. We had some Chicago PMI data came in a little bit weaker today, but it uh, just goes to show kind of where some of the Chicago, Chicago, it's very far away from it's Charlotte. Far away. Yeah, exactly. So good. North Carolina discussion here. Michelle Baker Sanders, North Carolina Secretary of Commerce, and Mike Fox, President and CEO of Piedmont. Is there, by the way, a rivalry with South Carolina at all? Because I always think of Spartanburg being a gearhead, you know, uh, the BMW plant down there. Is there, is there we, a little bit of... We compete with South Carolina. And um, so they're a part of the Southeastern family, but let's be clear, we do compete. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what I was wondering about. They're, they're SEC, uh, these, uh, North Carolina's ACC. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. All right, I want to switch gears because we had a trade that happened, an M&A trade over the last couple of days that got my attention because A, it involves banks, uh, and B, it's M&A, and I like M&A fees. So I want to get Paul Goldberg in here. Paul's a senior equity research analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. He covers the banks. Talk to us about this deal. Bank of Canada is buying HSBC's Canadian unit. So the biggest investment bank in Canada is getting even bigger? Yeah, thank you for having me, Paul. This is absolutely correct. RBC is the largest bank in Canada in cross-retail, in many cases in cross-business lending. So you look at different categories. They have 15 20% and some cases more than that of the market. So they are buying the number seven bank. And this is an extremely unique opportunity in Canada because most of the Canadian loans and deposits are basically distributed between the six banks. So, and we were just hearing about higher, stronger net interest margins um, in terms of some U.S. banks. I assume the situation is the same there, right? As we see rates pick up around the world, banks start to recover those uh, margins. It's actually very interesting and very similar, but it's shifting already in the U.S. and in Canada. RBC actually reported their fourth quarter earnings this morning. So the rates momentum is running out. It's been very strong for them. They're probably still going to see another 10, 15 basis points in the first half in terms of net interest margin expansion. But that will slow down throughout the year. And a lot of the banks are starting to hedge for a slowdown in interest rates. Already? Already. Well, RBC was a case in point this morning. They own City National, the bank in the U.S., so they're hedging out both the U.S. and Canada. They're not, they're not positioning to rates turning over and going go in the other direction, but they are trying to hedge out that upside. Not negative. Hopefully never negative again. Well, <laughs> not negative, but turning the other I way. Hear you, I hear you. I hear you. Instead of hike. jacking up 75 exactly. or 50 basis points a meeting, at some point they're going to start to cut. And even Gina Martin-Adams, I think we were just hearing from Critty, thinks that next year we'll see 50 basis points of cuts. Ooh, that'd be nice. That's got to be good for the markets. My bullish call. I mean, hopefully they get some build up some dry powder before that, right? right exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, Paul, we got, you know, Royal Bank of Canada, quality, quality player, doubling down on investment banking there in Canada. What's their bullish call on Canada, do you think? Where, if I'm in a banker, how do, how do I make money in Canada over the next five years? 
Well, it's Canada is a closed ecosystem, right? In terms of the banking, there are only a handful of banks. There are 50 banks in total in Canada. Okay. Uh, and six of them essentially run the market. So whatever the banks can do and whenever they can get their hand on expanding the market share in that very unique asset, they do it. So why, why does the Hong Kong Shanghai Banking Corporation want to sell? Well, I will defer to our European analysts who cover it, but yeah, I will mention that they did. No, no, no. But they, I will mention that, that they did have came down to their lower end of the capital range where they wanted to be. And that transaction, what John Tai said in his note, added about 130 basis points of CET1 capital. So that puts them in a very good position in terms of capital, potentially buybacks. All right. Talk to us about the Canadian residential housing market. That's different there than it is here. It's a bigger part of the you know a, a consumer's total net worth than it is. Well, and it was on fire for a yes. while. Right? So I want to know, um, what are the banks saying about the, the real estate market up there? It's slowing down very dramatically. It's not just the bank, what the banks are saying. We're seeing that in the numbers. Uh, but RBC, for example, just this morning, they seen it still growing in mid single digits. Not the prices, not the sales, but the mortgage loans because people still need to refinance. Canada is slightly different market. They don't have the 30 year mortgages. Their mortgages refinance every five years. So there's a lot of turnover. Ah, they that's still, right. That's what I was thinking about. Yeah, they they have much more interest rate risk than we they, do. They have more interest rate risk, but it, a lot of that interest rate risk ends up been, on the customer, not on the not on the bank who can refinance. All right, good stuff, Paul Goldberg. He covers uh, a lot of the banking stuff, including Canada for Bloomberg Intelligence. Just want to get the latest on what well, was a pretty big M and A trade up in Canada. Royal Bank of Canada acquiring HSBC's Canadian uh, unit, doubling down on their investment banking. Lamborghini is unveiling its latest $270,000 supercar that apparently is ready to take drivers off the highway and onto the dirt. We welcome now our Bloomberg television audience, our radio listeners, because we're joined by Stefan Winkelmann. He is the Lamborghini CEO and chair. Joining us as well, a very excited Bloomberg's Matt Miller. Um, Stefan, thank you very, very much indeed for your time. Why are you taking Lamborghini off-road? Well, the Huracan Cerrato is our last uh, uh, internal combustion engine car only. So it's the last launch we are going to do with a car like this. And I think that the Lamborghini always uh, was, is and was unexpected and will continue to be so. So I think to have uh, an all-terrain car is something which is incredible and it's really fun to drive and it's... Uh, very much uh, sticking to our DNA. You know, we have a permanent four-wheel drive system on this car. There's more ground clearance. So it's very easy to drive uh, on the on the normal roads, on the race track, but also uh, on, on gravel roads. So it's uh, fun, it's performing, but it's also a lifestyle car for, the, for big cities. Stefan Guy was asking me yesterday, like, why would I need an off-road Lamborghini? Um, and I pointed out that we have, you know, six to eight inch potholes in the major highways around New York City. That's the same in all of the major cities um, around, well, in Europe, at least, and, and here in the U.S. Is that part of the, the draw? Like, if I'm driving an Aventador, um, I drove one recently around Barcelona, and it's kind of terrifying with such low ground clearance. Is that part of the draw of one of these lifted Lambos? But I think we always uh, try to do something which is uh, 
new and uh, which was never there before. And uh, already years uh, back, we were uh, looking into an opportunity to do a sterrato. It, se it seemed very difficult to achieve. But then uh, when I came back to Lamborghini a couple of years ago, we refocused on it and uh, we made it. And uh, for sure, it's a car which is very much fitting into our environment because the, the situation of the infrastructure, as you said, no, in Europe, but also here in the U.S., is not the best one when it comes to, to, the, to, the, to the street. So it's uh, very easy to drive also. Uh, with uh, roads which are not in the best condition. Stefan, it strikes me that Volkswagen may have brought you back to Lamborghini, not just because you know the business and you're a great operator, but um, because they may want to IPO the brand. They just did it very successfully with Porsche, even in a tough market. Have you prepared um, Lambo for an IPO? No, there is nothing which we are doing to prepare an IPO, so this is not on our agenda timing. Okay. Okay, but, but your margins, Stefan, are looking phenomenal. You've got margins that are EBIT margins that are better than Ferrari's right now. I'm assuming that the, the, the new car as well will only improve those margins. Are these margins yes. as high as they are because you, you, you are sending this message that this is a business that people would want to buy? But I think that uh, what we're doing is to uh, work on the product, to work on the brand, to do the best we can uh, uh, with all the opportunities we have on our base models, all the Aventador, the Huracan, and the Urus to create derivates. And the brand is very young and fresh. So it's also inviting us to, uh, to attempt new territories and uh, to launch things like the Serrato. And uh, the results are, are very positive, not only in the United States, but all over uh, the world. And uh, we are always selling uh, more cars uh, so far than we are able to produce. And this is creating already an order bank which is exceeding uh, the 18 months. And this is very positive. Also looking into uh, the future, which is going to be hybrid from 23 onwards and which will be then mm, yep. uh, concluded by the end of 2024. So we now have the Sterato. We, we also have the, the 911 Dakar. Uh, and I understand there has been some cooperation conversations between you and Porsche as, as these cars have evolved. How close is that relationship right now, Stefan? We are a big group. So uh, when, we speak, when the, the, the brands come together, for sure, there, are, uh, there is a, a clear positioning of the different brands and, and of the cars. But uh, everybody is proud uh, on doing his own product and is trying to do and to create the best out of uh, uh, what he has in his drawers. And uh, I think that this is uh, uh, very good. And the Serato is, is just a proof on how, how much our engineers and also our marketing people and uh, in general, our people in Sant'Agata Bolognese are passionate about uh, uh, what we're doing. Stefan, I've, uh, I'm lucky enough to have been to Santa Agata a few times. I've seen your production facilities. Recommend everyone who gets a chance goes and tours the factory. How much is that going to change when you go to hybridization uh, or electric cars? Are you going to have a new infrastructure footprint? Uh, for sure. We are, in fact, now we are uh, the super sports car uh, factory uh, with the Huracan and uh, the Aventador follower is uh, now changing a lot. We are building a new uh, assembly line, uh, which when the new Huracan as a hybrid is coming at the end of 2024, 
will not be two as it's today, but there will be then one line which is uh, being able uh, to produce both of the super sports cars. So we're doing a lot. It's not only about the product and uh, let's say the, the marketing, but it's also a lot about uh, what we're doing in our factory and, and how we work also with our suppliers. Also changing all the people uh, with the new types of uh, job descriptions, mm. uh, um, artificial intelligence and all the things which are going around uh, the hybridization and electrification with battery technology. So and you get, I mean, massive margins. Everybody loves these limited edition vehicles. Are you planning on producing more of those before you change the production facilities? Well, you know, by the beginning of next year, actually, we will have a last uh, um, incredible surprise on uh, uh, the B12 engine uh, uh, only. There will be a, a very nice announcement, uh, which uh, I will not uh, anticipate too much. But in January, we will do a big announcement about uh, a single car, which is going to be phenomenal. And this is then still based on our actual B12 engine. And we are very proud uh, uh, to talk about this when uh, we are doing the announcement. Can I get an order January. in? Can you, can okay. you reserve yeah. one for me, Stefan? <laughs> but for the next one, you know, we have a queue. We have a lot of uh, our customers which are um, applying to create and with, together with us uh, a one-off. But mm. this takes years and we are doing these things uh, only once in a while. Matt's one-off as well. I, I, I think he should definitely go to the top of the queue. Stefan, come back in January. We'll look forward to hearing about the new car. Thank you very much indeed for your time today. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com TechSF. Right to our next guest, James Stravitis, a retired admiral with the U.S. Navy, having served 37 years. He served as the 15th commander in U.S. European Command, and he was also NATO's 16th Supreme Allied uh, Commander in Europe. He's also a published author. His latest book is entitled 2034, a novel of the next world world. Admiral, thank you so much for joining us here. I'd love to just get your latest thinking on Ukraine. Where could this go in the coming days, weeks, and dare say months? Yeah, unfortunately, I think it will be months, but I don't think it's going to be years. Um, let's put it this way. At the moment, it's a tale of two wars. One is being fought on the ground. The Ukrainians are winning that one. They're pushing the Russians back. I like their chances in ground warfare. The other war, tale of two wars, the other one is an air war which Putin is winning. He is uh, has a much bigger air force. The Ukrainians don't have sufficient air defense to really knock it down. And therefore, Putin is going after the electric grid. He's going after water supplies. He's really committing war crimes, going after the civilian population. So he's winning in the air. Bottom line, if the U.S. 
NATO, the West, if we help the Ukrainians close their skies, giving them surface-to-air missiles, Patriot batteries, uh, combat aircraft are under discussion. If we take those kind of steps, take the air war away from Putin, I think that pushes us toward a negotiation simply because Putin begins to run out of runway here. And I think that probably happens, to put it all together, Matt and Paul, that probably happens in the late winter, early spring of next year. Watch for this to go to a negotiation at that point. Wow. So, and uh, by the way, wh- what is there to negotiate? I mean, the Ukrainians have said they will accept nothing less than the complete um, pullout of Russia from all Ukrainian lands and territories. Yeah, we're on a business network here. And whenever you start a negotiation uh, in business and war and love, you start with a maximalist position. I'd say that's what the Ukrainians correctly are conveying. Um, at some point, realistically, it's going to be very difficult for the Ukrainians to completely expel the Russian armed forces. That is why you have a negotiation. I would say our job in the West is to give the Ukrainians the tools to go to the negotiating table in the strongest possible position. Admiral, whose decision do you think it ultimately will be to, uh, I guess, build up the air defenses, the air forces of Ukraine, like you suggest? Is this primarily a U.S. decision or will this be a broader NATO decision? Uh, The latter. And we just saw the NATO foreign ministers get together um, in Europe um, to include our own secretary of state, Tony Blinken. They're backed up by the ministers of defense, our secretary of defense, General Lloyd Austin. And those conversations are live. They're real. Uh, You're certainly going to see additional air defense flowing into Ukraine. The question that was under discussion continues to be is whether the Ukrainians should be provided Uh, combat fighter aircraft, either MiG-29s from Poland or F-16s from the United States. I think we will probably end up providing those sometime in the months ahead. Is I mean, can you count on this administration to be there um, for Ukraine? Can you count on Washington to be there? It's not just in the hands of the president, of course, now that the Republicans, a lot of whom do not want to continue um, supplying Ukraine with money or supplies. Um, I think that there remains very strong bipartisan support. Certainly, you you hear some cracking noises on the far right, and you hear some cracking noises on the far left. But I think that on this one, the center will hold. Um, And you're going to continue to see, particularly on the Senate side, but I think even in the House, um, I don't feel there's a groundswell that completely cut off aid to Ukraine. That would be disastrous economically, it would be disastrous um, militarily, and diplomatically going forward, it would send many wrong signals. I don't see that happening. I think Washington broadly will hold together. might be some diminution of, of support, but I think that support broadly will continue. Uh, Admiral, how do you game out the, the Putin risk, if you will, that perhaps is, he does something you know, really unusual, unwise, and it just really escalates this thing? <laughs> I think that's a possibility, um, and I would categorize it as the cards he's playing now, cutting off um, hydrocarbons to Western Europe, hoping to crack their resolve. That'll play out through the winter. And this air campaign, this kind of carpet bombing of the infrastructure, he's going to wait to see how those two cards play out. If neither of those produce for him the intended result, then he might reach for something 
more dramatic, at the really dark end of the spectrum, he could consider the use of a tactical nuclear weapon. I think that's highly unlikely. He knows it would cause a, a massive immediate shift in global attitudes toward mm. Russia. It would move that swing vote of India, Nigeria, South Africa, Brazil, those countries that are kind of in the middle on this. I don't think he goes there. That's why I think he starts to run out of options once these two cards I just mentioned get played. Um, I think that's why it is unlikely he'll be able to suddenly flip the script. Admiral, on another note, you know I'm a huge fan of 2034 uh, because I tell you pretty much every time you come on. Great (laughs) book. And I've got to ask when the next one is coming. Are you working on another novel? We are. Um, I co-wrote 2034, a novel of the next World War, with Elliot Ackerman, a combat Marine veteran. The next book is set and titled 2054, and it's about artificial intelligence, cyber, and challenges here domestically in the United States. Civil disagreements in the United States come together mid-century. It's uh, like 2034, this novel, 2054, is a work of cautionary fiction. <laughs> we need to be careful as we move forward in these decades. Well, and it's kind of scary how prescient it, uh, 2034 already looks. It does. <laughs> and I, I hope uh, it remains fictional. Exactly. Yes. All right, Admiral, yeah, thank yeah, you so much. We really appreciate it. Admiral James Stravitas, uh, retired U.S. Navy, uh, 16th Supreme, Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, giving us his latest thoughts. Let's talk some technology, uh, and because that's always fun to talk about. That's, things are always moving there, and to do that, we bring in Anurag Rana. He's a senior technology analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, he joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And let's just start with Apple, but I want to get to a couple other names. I see Workday is a stock that's just ripping today. We'll get to that, but Apple, strike. are they going to t- – talk to us about that supply chain and their ability to deliver iPhones, and how long is this going to be an issue for our friends at Apple? Oh, it's going to be an issue till they let the factories open, and I think that is a bigger issue uh, for everybody. Now, um, all the iPhones are not made in that region or in that factory. It's only the iPhone 14 Pro model, which is the more expensive model and which is in really high demand at this point. It's the most important model. Yes. So so Apple, Mm -hmm. one of the biggest and most important companies in the world, makes basically all of its main iPhone models in one place no, in China. No, no, that's only the iPhone Pro model. The yeah. other iPhone 14 normal models, others but No one buys that one, right? It's no, just no, the no, Pro. It, if it, you're going to spend $700, you are in for a grant. No, no, it, it, they, 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 they do buy the, the other ones as well. This is only a small portion of it, but it makes a difference to in terms of mathematically, you're going to lose a few billion dollars because of it in the upcoming quarter. But, the you know, we, we have a, two very strong analysts in Asia, and they explained it to me and said, listen, January, Feb is a very slow month in production. They're going to make up for that at that time. And for the year, it's going to be okay. So which means, you know, sales are going to get pushed out from the December quarter to the Jan quarter, Jan, Feb quarter. It's not a big deal. And other vendors, they they, they have a lot other vendors and they've already asked them to, to, you know, start preparing for making those phones going out in the first quarter. So hopefully you know, they ask them like, Five years ago. I, now, again, it, these things do take time. So, you you know, if something happened 10 days ago, you just can't, you know, start making it in, you know, somebody's basement. It's just not that the same. So Yeah, but something happened. Remember Donald Trump? 
I mean, we've been at odds with China for a while now. Uh, You'd think that they would say, hey, let's move around the supply chain here. They, they are moving around yeah. it. They have plants in, you know, in uh, assembly areas in India and other areas. But again, think about it. That's something that took 20 years to build. You just can't unravel it in, in a couple of years. It just takes time. And I think investors don't understand that part of it. Uh, and I th it'll be fine. I, I think over the long run, they will diversify. I think it from a, from a uh, you say, being conscious about this is a very good thing for them. And I think they will open areas outside, the, outside China as well. All right, you've been talking to us about this cloud thing for years and years and years. And here's another one, Workday. Wait a second, we're gonna move off Apple? Yeah. I Hang on a second. Why? You, because they are set up for a massive for showdown. Okay, the stock may not be moving now, but Tim Cook is in Washington today. Why? To meet with incoming Republicans because they are gaining a lot of power in Washington. And they're gonna be- What's he asking for? They're gonna be on Team Elon, right? Oh, whose side do you wanna be on? I'm, I don't I'm not taking a side, okay. but I'm gonna say, <laughs> Elon Musk is now accusing Apple of- uh, Pulling of, advertising of, and of, then- Of cracking down on free speech, essentially. Right. This is kind of a Republican rallying cry because he wants to get out of their uh, app store ecosystem and not pay the 30% gate fee. Are so you worried how's about that, that going to be set up? It's again, this is for the courts to decide. So it's very difficult. But uh, you know, our Jenry, uh, uh, who's our expert in this area, and says, "Listen, um, you know, Apple, may, uh, Epic Games made a case against Apple, and in the end, they lost. I mean, at the end of that, right. they, this has already been litigated. That's at already the done. Court. It's already been done. Yeah. So he can make a little bit cry. That's okay. Let him cry. It's fine." So, but are Apple investors that you talk to, are no. they concerned about a showdown between Elon Musk and Apple? You know, let it be, because at the end of the day, the, co if the, the court has already decided that's a fair fee for placing your product on uh, the App Store. And I think the bigger question is going to be, is he going to open it and make it a lot more, you know, crazy? And are, will it have content that Apple- You mean Twitter now? Yeah. It, 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 will, that Apple can't uh, tolerate. Well, App Store has- You mean like anti-Semitic tweets from very popular people? App, App Store has certain rules, and it could be multiple areas. This is just one topic that you're topic, talking about. And if, the, if Twitter you know, breaks that, it will say you can't be on the platform. It's a very simple thing. Now, the rules are for everybody. It's not specifically for Twitter. Those rules are there for any other App Store or anybody who's building an application. And if they decide to go break out of it, then they, you know, that's, that's a problem for them. All right, so Matt wants to stay on this story. So we'll stay on this story. We've seen the tweets from Elon, okay? Have we seen any response from Apple? I don't know. I just think he said Happy Thanksgiving like a few days ago. That was okay. it. That, that, that's all I can remember. So they're not going to be going nah. back and forth, I guess. But I Tim mean, Cook's Elon, Elon Musk had tweeted a meme where... Um, there's a highway with a fork in the road, right? One, <laughs> one, one direction is pay 30% gate fee to get into Apple e ecosystem, and one uh, side is go to war with Apple. And Elon Musk chooses <laughs> go to war with Apple. Yeah, I, I, I think this could be, I think you're pretty sanguine. I think this could be a little bit more than a ripple. Yeah, but the thing is, I mean, frankly, you know, he can go make a phone and then figure it out. His, his company makes, what, eight, 10 billion in free cash flow, Apple makes 100 billion. Let's see how that how that sh shows up. Ooh, okay, okay. We'll, we'll we'll watch this space because I think you could see a Republican Congress start to act on this, try and crack down more on Apple. We've already seen even Democrats like Elizabeth Warren have already commented today that they want to uh, that they want to crack down on this monopoly. Yeah, they they have a problem with the App Store. Everybody wants to crack down on big tech, but at the end of the day, courts do you know matter. All right.
Good stuff. We'll pay attention. And plus, there's the isn't there an Android Android thing out there too? What were you talking about? WorldCom or something? What was the workday? Stock oh, stocks up eleven percent. It's a forty billion dollar market cap stock up. It's the bane of my existence. Workday is it? Yes, yeah. exactly. All right, Anurag Rana covers all things technology for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, he graced us with his presence here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We appreciate that. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.